You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. E.B. White was trying to decide whether he should will his brain to his dear alma mater when he should pass away. And as he thought about that question, he was aware of the fact that he's always had a little bit of a smaller head than other people. And he began to feel self-conscious, perhaps, about the size of his brain and that it might suffer by comparison if arranged on the shelf with others. So he wasn't sure he wanted to uh, make the, the gift. As he was reflecting on this, he began to write some poetry that perhaps would serve as an, inscri- an inscription uh, beside his brain on that shelf someday. And here's what he wrote. Observe, quick friend, this quiet noodle. The kit removed from its caboodle. Here sits a brain at last unhinged on which too many thoughts impinged. (laughs) Is spirituality a property of the brain? When we ask that question, we are asking ourselves uh, about the noodle inside the caboodle. And the question is really, are your perceptions of life, with all of its fullness, are they really just nothing more than a little bit of electromagnetic activity and chemical, uh, a metered chemical doses in your brain. Is that all it is? In 1948, there was a railroad accident in Vermont. There was a man by the name of Phineas Gage who was the foreman on the job. He was 25 years old, a delightful young man. What they were doing was laying track uh, through rock. Vermont is a lot of granite, as you may know if you've been there. They would bore holes in the granite, and they would then put uh, sand and blasting powder and a fuse uh, in that hole. Then they would tamp it down with a large metal rod. And unfortunately, no explanation. At one point, that uh, charge discharged, and there was an explosion that nobody expected, and it sent that rod as a projectile through the head, the cranial cavity of Phineas Gage, in one side and out the other side. Now, he survived, and here's a picture of good old Phineas. Uh, He uh, made a relatively full recovery, which is astonishing, because the thing you see him holding right there, that rod, it's an inch and a quarter, and that's what went through his head. But what was interesting to many at that time was how his personality changed. Because prior to the accident, Phineas had been a very genteel, gracious, polite family man. But after the accident, he began to cuss up a storm. He was cranky, he was mean, he was ornery, and his friends said he was no longer Gage. Well, he did, with time, regain some of his prior personality. And and yet the question is, what is it about the brain that could change a person's, what we thought was a spiritual aspect of his being, his personality, who he is as a person. Well, since that point forward, psychologists and soon neurobiologists have taken a lot of interest in the brain and its relationship to the human mind and sense of self. Uh, Now we have, in the last 10 years, a phenomenal opportunity to study this question. Uh, we have now fMRI and, and PET scans that allow us to see shadows of the brain's activity in a person who's alive and actually thinking that we can ask questions of or, or, or see them as they pray and we can look and see the activity of the uh, oxygen levels or blood flow through parts of the brain and get these great images. 
But it's beginning to raise the question, is that all that we are? Biology. A few years ago, Sir Francis Crick, who won the Nobel Prize for, uh, he was one of the co-discoverers of the structure of DNA. He wrote a book in which he described the astonishing hypothesis. And the astonishing hypothesis is that there is nothing more to you than your biology. And here's how he put it at the beginning of his book. He says, you, and I want you to notice the quotation marks, what you think of as you, uh, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules, Sir Francis Crick. So is that all there is? Is that all there is to who we are and to our experience of some other world that we think of as spirituality? We have stories of the brain today, our own contemporary Phineas Gages that uh, interest us when we think about spirituality. Let me just share two with you. One, in 1996, Jill Bolt Taylor ruptured a, a blood vessel on the left side of her brain. Jill Bolt-Taylor was then a 37-year-old Harvard-trained neuroscientist. And she, as her blood vessel is rupturing, actually begins to study her own demise as she loses consciousness. You you may have heard her tell her story in a TED talk that has gone uh, viral. Fascinating to hear her say. But what, what she observes is that this experience opened up to her a whole side of spirituality that is very foreign to her. She said, I I began to feel at one with the universe following her recovery. Uh, She said, my spirit soared free like a great whale gliding through the sea of silent euphoria. Here's another story. This one told by uh, Barbara Bradley Haggerty, you know, the NPR reporter. She tells us about a man named Jeff Schimmel. Jeff Schimmel is a Hollywood screenwriter who, uh, at age 40 in the year 2000, had a benign tumor in his head. It was in his left temporal lobe. And the surgeons came and they opened up his skull and they took out the tumor and it was no big deal. And they got it done and he was fine. But a couple of years later, Jeff began to notice he was hearing things. He was hearing voices and he began to have visions. In fact, one day as he was lying on his bed, he looked up in his ceiling and he saw a swirl of color and he realized that's the Virgin Mary, which was odd because he was a non-believing Jew. And Jeff Schimmel said, why would the Virgin Mary appear to me, a Jewish guy, lying in bed looking at the ceiling? She could do much better. <laughs> he went back to his uh, neurophysician uh, for a regular checkup. And he, while he was there, he said, hey, can you show me these fMRIs? And looked at these images. And uh, sort of a before and a after. And they saw that what had been happening in the last couple of years, his left frontal lobe was shrinking a little bit. The tissue was pulling away from the side of the cranium. And there was scar tissue there. And the physician said, your problem with these visions is you've got temporal lobe epilepsy. It's your biology. Is that all that spirituality is? See, now you see the question. For some, what we're seeing in these studies and these beautiful images of the brain are are traces of transcendence. Somehow, this is the moment when the spiritual and the physical world overlap and we get to actually see something of it. But for others... We see indications that what we call the spiritual world is nothing more than electrical sizzle and doses of dopamine and serotonin. 
want to ask you to just think for a moment and reflect. Even ask God a question. Not so much about your physiology, unless you choose to do so, but let's address ourselves to that larger question that I raised earlier uh, in our worship service. If you want, if it's helpful, you might bow your head and close your eyes and ask God these questions. God, how do you make yourself known to me? God, how can I give you access to more of my life? Let's go to him in prayer. Tell the radio audience that you all stood spontaneously and the pastors look, what's, we're not supposed to be standing now. Well, liturgy is the work of the people and we love it when you lead us in worship. Jesus Christ inspires us as we worship him together. Well, we all have our noodles trapped in our caboodles. And, and frankly, that's where you want your brain to be. Thank you very much. Uh, but it's not where you want to limit your thinking. So let's uh, expand our thinking by letting God speak his word into this question right now. Would you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5? Uh, in your small groups this week, you'll have an opportunity to explore the whole chapter. But I really want to just, uh, for the purposes of our worship service, invite you to read this together with me. Uh, you find on page 927, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, just the first five verses. And if you're able... Would you stand with me as we read God's word aloud together as his people? When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not proclaim the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. If you saw that TED talk, then you saw Jill Bolt Taylor at a certain point in her lecture ask for a brain. And there's a kind of a, a laughter in the audience like, oh yeah, what's she going to do, bring out a tray of hamburger or whatever? And and then that laughter begins to change into something much closer to nervous laughter because somebody, in fact, walks out onto the stage with a cold metal tray and she puts on two rubber gloves and then she lifts this thing out that looks very much like those drawings you saw in eighth grade biology. 
And, and she just holds it up there. And there's this, and there's a silence in the room. Silence, I think, because there's something sacred about, about seeing this unbelievably intricate and complex wonder of creation. But then for me, and I, I don't know how many others were reacting this way, for me, when I saw that, I thought, somebody's died. And, and, and I looked at that, and I thought, that's not just tissue uh, that's in her hands. There, 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 was, there was a life to whom that tissue belonged. There was a person, there was, there was somebody who had a favorite color, and she had memories, and she had hopes, and she had dreams and aspirations. There were things that she was afraid of. There were things that she longed for. There were people that she loved. And most importantly, she was loved by people and ultimately and infinitely by the one who made this bit of tissue. You look at that brain and you say, where is the life? Because you just can't see it in Jill's hands when she holds up. The brain. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us to look elsewhere for the life. He tells the Corinthians that we will find the life in a man named Jesus of Nazareth. The Apostle Paul, who was at one point the great and highly educated Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, knew at that time that Jesus Christ had been dead probably for a couple of years as he journeys along the road to Damascus. And then all of a sudden, in a flash of light, he sees Jesus Christ come from heaven out of nowhere, physically present to him, resurrected, as alive as you and I are, and even more so, and speaking to him. Now, this is just the one thing that could not have been the case for Rabbi Saul of Tarsus because his whole mission right now had been to tamp out the heretics who've been running around Judea claiming that Jesus is back. That the one who was crucified has been risen from the dead, that they have no body at the tomb and he's alive walking around and talking to people. Saul goes through the greatest paradigm shift that a human being will ever go through. And he becomes the person we know of as St. Paul. Now, there are some who will suggest that what Saul experienced was uh, temporal lobe epilepsy. I mean, they're writing that right now. Maybe that was it. And it it seems possible but improbable. As uh, uh, Barbara Bradley Haggerty said, it it would be hard to imagine if you've ever seen epilepsy and how horrifying those seizures are. And some of you have seen that. And and if you've ever seen it, it would be hard to imagine that this would have been helpful to Paul as he uh, virtually wrote the whole body of of Christian doctrine. It's hard to imagine that, that, that epilepsy would have been helpful to Paul as he virtually evangelizes the Roman Empire. And more than that, I would only add that it's hard to explain how it is that this same sort of temporal lobe epilepsy must have seized the many people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this seems to be a fact of history. The apostles all gave their lives because they would not give up the claim that, no, we've seen him. And the apostle Paul himself in uh, 1 Corinthians, this very same correspondence, chapter 15, he will tell them, He will tell the Corinthians there are more than 500 people at one time who saw 
Jesus risen from the dead, and they're still among us. He says, you can, you can run the Snopes test on these folks, because you can just ask them. They'll tell you if it's a hoax. And I'm, I'm thinking, it would be amazing if they all contracted temporal uh, lobe uh, epilepsy at the same time. You wonder what's in the water. But the people in Corinth, they were looking at their living and they were somehow missing the life. They were not seeing enough. They had their thinking trapped in their caboodle. And they were influenced, I think, by Greek philosophy. And, and you, you may know enough about Greek philosophy to know that they were dualists. And, which meant that for the Greeks, you know, the world as we know it is rather disappointing. It's just material, it's, it's mundane, it's physical, and it, it doesn't deliver what we know life should be all about and it seems to promise. And so they had this idea that there must be this immaterial world where real reality, where real life somehow exists in the forms and ideals of eternity. And, and so they were dualists. And it seems that the Greek pursuit of wisdom, of Sophia, or knowledge, or mystery, or the spiritual things, seems to have infected the Corinthian church, because Paul will use some of those same words in chapter 2 and turn it back on them. And say, do you really think we need all these things when we have Jesus? See, the, the, the materialist who looks at something physical, like a brain, and says, this is everything... It has something very significant in common with a person who holds something physical like the Greeks and said, this is really nothing. See, both of them have limited their imaginations and can't see all that is. They can't see reality as God has made it. And you and I miss life in exactly the same way. When I get out of the bed, i got to tell you some mornings, I am so cranky. And it's not just the bedhead that's awful these days. Uh, you, you, know, you know what it's like to be people who think the biggest challenge is just, oh no, honey, you missed a belt loop. Or we grind our way through the work day, or maybe we have to stay home and wait for three hours for the cable guy to come and they won't really tell you when he's coming, so you're just there wondering what in the world is happening today. Or, or hobbling around on that tendonitis that just seems to hang on. For us, living is very mundane, and we tend to think that this is all that is, or this crowds out our thinking of anything bigger. And the idea of glory just seems to escape us. What the Apostle Paul says to people like you and me is, in the midst of that, Jesus Christ is God's wisdom, and you don't need to go pursuing it because wisdom is pursuing you. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, just before the section we read, Paul writes, He, God, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is the face of God drawing near to your face and to mine in love. What the Greeks called foolishness, the incarnation, the cross of Jesus Christ, Paul calls wisdom, and he calls it glory. Verse 8, chapter 2, the Lord of glory. This, for the Corinthians, as it does for us, defies the categories and the limitations of our cognitive bandwidth. Paul understands that. He, he, he says, I didn't come with plausible words of wisdom. I came with a message that's utterly implausible, and you're right to call it foolishness, but it's the wisdom of God. What God shows us in Jesus Christ in verse 9, he says, is what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the human heart conceived. God is preparing this for those who love him. 
he writes. See, their thinking was trapped. And my thinking gets trapped. And in that place, there is no hope for people who are called to hope in Jesus Christ. William James was the late 19th century father of of American psychology, as we oftentimes refer to him. And he distinguished between these two philosophies what he called materialism on the one hand and spiritualism on the other. One James scholar in a lecture says, Materialism holds that eventually our sun will die, earth will be destroyed, the universe will collapse on itself, and everything we hoped or dreamed or achieved or learned will be for naught. Happy guy. (laughs) But a spiritual worldview, the scholar continues, leaves room for hope. Then in all we accomplish, all we are, will be preserved for eternity if only in the mind of God. And it is that mind that we study when we worship. The Apostle Paul says in verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. You and I have been given the mind of God. We can follow the thoughts of God and the mind of Jesus Christ. He is our wisdom. So, is spirituality a property of the brain? Well, yes, of course. It's no surprise that if there is a God trying to communicate with us, when we receive such communication, it would show up physiologically in who we are. But we want to be careful to understand that's not all there is. As Ray Tallis writes, trying to find human life in the brain is like trying to hear the rustle of a forest by listening to a seed. No, true spirituality is so much more than the brain. It is experiencing God's thinking. It it, it is not something we experience because we approach God in some kind of spiritual pursuit. It's the, the thinking that we gain in the mind of Christ as God has approached us and revealed himself to us. We could never just know the spirit world or what God thinks. We would be trapped by the limitations of our biology or culture or history or subjectivity. This is confirmed by the Bible, in which I, uh, we read in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see what he's saying? He's saying you would be just trapped inside your thinking. Your, wor- your mental world would be too small. And yet, my thoughts I reveal to you through my word even the living word, Jesus Christ. So we don't want to just reflect on our own minds. We want to ask the question, what is in the mind of God? And here we wonder with the psalmist in Psalm 8, 4, who says, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou didst care for him? Karl Barth asks, can God be known? His answer, yes. This knowledge is determined and guaranteed by its object, by God. But for that very reason, it is genuine knowledge. Is it so hard for us to imagine that the God who made the eye, who made the ear, having done so in love, wants to have interpersonal relationship with us, wants not only to know you, but to be known by you, that therefore he could create you with a faculty or a capacity to receive communication from him, that communication which is most clearly offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So will we. Will we let God open our minds to the life he is offering us in Jesus Christ this morning and to dare to hear more than just a seed, but to hear the rustle of a spiritual forest?
Let's pray. Dear God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are amazed that despite the limitations of our thinking and the banality of all of our living, you are mindful of us. You have come in Jesus Christ to reveal eternal mysteries to us, to speak your love and care and persistent grace into our lives. You have not given up on us and will never give up on us, and you want us to know that. You ask us to dream great dreams of this creation, the fullness of your life as you renew all things, not just us, but all things around us, and ask us to participate in that renewal. The earth is yours and all that it contains. And so it is out of the abundance of your generosity that we now ask you, Lord, to make us a generous people. Inspire us to give to those who have so much less than we have. We pray for those who are cold or need a cup of coffee or a word of encouragement across this city or around the world and ask that by our tithes and offerings, you would draw near to them and let them know that they too are loved in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. So how do we live this question? Well, One of the interesting things about the recent study on the brain-mind dilemma is that for some people, the question is beginning to shift. The question has been, in what way does the, ways do the, uh, does the brain influence the mind? And now for some, the research is beginning to ask the question, in what ways does the mind influence the brain? And this is called neuroplasticity. What we're realizing only relatively recently is the brain is not a static thing. The brain has an incredible capacity to rewire itself on a daily basis. It's constantly reconfiguring, reshaping itself. Neuroplasticity. Last month, uh, Kathy Hutchinson gave herself a drink for the very first time in 15 years. Uh, I know what you want to know. It was a cinnamon latte. But, but what happened to Kathy was 40, uh, 15 years ago, she was 43 years old, and she had a stroke in her brain stem. That stroke left her paralyzed from the neck down. She could not move her arms, her legs. She could not even speak. But last month, uh, the journal Nature, which is one of the preeminent science uh, journals in the world, published a, a study and a photo uh, and some video of Kathy. I want you to see a, a, a picture of Kathy now causing herself to have a drink of cinnamon latte. And you go, this is amazing. How did, how did they do this? Well, there are two components, power and imagination. Uh, first of all, what's happening here, what you see is Kathy is sitting in a chair. She, they have put a circuit the size of a, of a little aspirin inside her brain. And right now she's hardwired. They're developing technology to do it by radio signal. But she's then hardwired to a computer that is driving this robotic arm. That's power. There's a link between her mind, her brain and that machine. The other component is imagination, because here's what stopped me cold. You may have seen this in the Seattle Times. She's quoted in, in the Times as saying, I just imagined moving my own arm, and the robotic arm moved where I wanted it to go. She moves this arm with imagination. 
It's the power of her mind to influence the remapping brain that gives an electrical signal to this arm and moves it. Can you believe that? Well, I just wonder if it isn't that God intends for a very similar process in my life and in yours. Because the Apostle Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. And the question is, how does it begin to influence us? Because God's purpose, His intention is that the mind of Christ would begin to shape our lives, would begin to rewire who we are, would begin to move us out into action in the world. And so you ask, how? Well, if Kathy Hutchinson's any help, two things, power and imagination. Then I think these are just the two things that Paul calls attention to for his beloved brothers and sisters in Corinth. When he, he says, look, when I came to you, I didn't come with fancy words, with human wisdom. I came to you with a simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified because I wanted your faith to rest on power. And he tells us in verse 5 what that power is. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. He says, there is a power in your life. And, and that power is a link. It's a, it's a, it's a very real connection between the mind of Jesus Christ and your life. And that power is in you, at work in you. And that's so much better to know that there's a personal presence of Jesus Christ through his spirit in my life than to have a map for life to help me make all the decisions or show me what the... I'd rather have the real thing than a map. And, you know, you might say to me, George, let me show you Europe. And you might unfold a map. And you say, "Here's here's Europe. And I would say... No, that's not Europe. And he said, oh, yes, it is. You know, here's Belgium, here's Portugal, here's Greece, here's Italy. This is Europe. I said, no, that's not Europe. I've been to Europe. That's a map. And in in the same way, you you know, people who are saying, George, here's the brain. You know, by the way, we're a long ways off from being able to map the brain. We're nowhere near that. But even if they were and they showed you, here's a map of your brain. This explains all thought and spirituality. You'd say, "That's that's not real life. Maybe a map of life. But life is something so much more. And Paul says, absolutely. And his name is Jesus Christ. And you have access to him through the presence of his Holy Spirit in your life. He gives you inspiration. Albert Banduras, a Stanford psychologist, says, you know, even if you could map the neural circuits of Martin Luther King Jr.'s brain as he's giving the I have a dream speech on the Washington Mall, even if you could do that, he's pointed out that this would reveal nothing about how that speech came to be created and nothing about its social, the, the power of its social influence in the world. Because it's about inspiration. And that's what you and I have in the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing we're called to do is to imagine The mechanism, I believe, in our life is imagination. It's really a way of thinking about the faith that Paul describes. He says, I wanted your faith to be founded upon the real power of the Holy Spirit. But faith is important. We have to have a fresh imagination. We have to get beyond the parameters and the confines of our our caboodle and out into the world in which Jesus Christ is reality. That's why he makes a contrast in verses 5 and 13 between human wisdom and the possibilities that we can see within our own limited thinking and faith, verse 5, the possibilities that we can see when we think about the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. And our lives get so small. My life gets so small. I complain and I grunt and I moan and I kick around the house and 
My wife's like the Holy Spirit. She'd say to me, George, you, like we say to our teenagers on summer break, you need to get out and play. Get outside and have a bigger awareness of what God is doing in your life. And we all need that. And that's what God is doing throughout the pages of the biblical history. He says to Abraham, for example, Abraham, Abram, I want you to look up at the stars. I want you to consider every single grain of sand on the beaches of the world. Fuel your imagination. And as he does, God gives him the power then to do what he could not otherwise do, and that is to go to a place that God has determined, and Abraham goes. Likewise, God says to an enslaved people in Egypt, uh, I know this is tough sitting by the flesh pots of Egypt, but could you imagine, would you be willing to dream with me of a place flowing with milk and honey? It's a promised land. And they engage their imaginations, and pretty soon, here's the people that are walking literally through the Red Sea. They're going. They're crossing. Likewise, we've been studying Ezekiel and in exile, a broken people, lonely and lost. God comes and says, will you engage your imagination? And will you think about all these things? Most ultimately, a a temple rebuilt with a river that flows out and gives life to all of creation, renews all of living things. And it gives them what they need to eventually go back and rebuild Israel and Jerusalem. Or the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ. To whom Jesus, when their world seems so small and embattled, he says, I want you just to consider the lilies of the field, the ravens of the air, and how your heavenly Father provides for them, though they neither toil nor worry. How much more will he do for you? And he empowers them to go with this greater imagination and trust to live a life of faith. So how does this begin to change our lives? Well, there's an interesting sub-branch of, of, of those who are studying neuroplasticity that's just being developed by a man named Dan Siegel at UCLA. It's called interpersonal neurobiology. I want you to catch that part, interpersonal neurobiology. It's a suggestion that through relationship, the brain is being remapped, it's being changed. You may have seen Dan Siegel's article in the New York Times in March called The Brain on Love. In this, uh, Siegel writes, when two people become a couple, the brain extends its idea of self to include the other. Instead of the slender pronoun I, a plural self emerges who can borrow some of the other's assets and strengths. And he says, love is the best school. Do you see what's happening with the mind of Christ? When, When you... And Jesus Christ developed a growing love for one another. Jesus loves you completely and you begin to respond and your love for him develops. Then you lose the sense of independence and you develop a plural sense of self and you can borrow some of his assets and strengths. That's what Paul calls the spirit. Now I begin to understand why it is after Jesus is resurrected, he comes back to Peter who has denied him three times out of fear and anxiety and shame. And he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Jesus is rewiring his brain. And he wants to do the same for you and for me as well. How will we answer him? Well, he's given us his noodle and with it the whole kit and caboodle, the mind of Christ. Let's take a moment in silent worship to thank him for his love and to open us up to even more of it in our lives. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, 
Visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.